All right, Revelation chapter four. Here we go. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peaks of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature, like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, all are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and is, and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things And by your will, they existed and were created. Amen. Lord Jesus, won't you help us this morning as we consider these words that by your spirit you inspired nearly 2,000 years ago and yet you're present here today and you're speaking to your people and I pray that you would give us hearts that are attentive are soft and open to what you would say to us today, your people. Be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Chapter four begins with the words, after this. So we must pause there and remind ourselves what exactly has happened. Now, it's been a few months since we've been in Revelation, but Up until this point, um, several things have happened. In Revelation chapter 1, we catch up with John, the apostle, who has been exiled and is existing on the island of Patmos. Most historians and scholars argue that he was probably exiled there, some sort of a political uh, prisoner. The Romans didn't know what to do with him. He kept inciting uh, riots and, and, and leading this new way of Jesus. And he was problematic. And so he was dumped off on this island to die. And it says, on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit. 
And in a moment, he heard a voice speaking to him, and it was Jesus. And Jesus introduces himself to John and begins to say to him, I'd like you to write seven letters to the seven ancient churches in the Roman province of Asia, to uh, Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And he says, I want you to write these letters, and Jesus has specific things to say to these seven specific churches. And I would argue that, yes, they were actual specific ancient churches that existed in the first century, but there's something about the way the letters are written. They're like the, these prophetic utterances, as if Jesus was speaking to them, and yet he's still speaking to us now and has always used these words to, to build up and to challenge, to correct, and encourage his church throughout the ages, which he does. And he says to some of the churches very hard things. Um, to a couple of the churches, he, I mean, he, just, he has very, very hard words to speak to the church because apparently they're, they're beginning to miss the point. And they're beginning to turn to other gods and they're forgetting who Jesus really is and, and what God has done in him. And it's not a good look and, and Jesus has to correct them quite severely. To some of the other churches, he simply encourages them. Like the church in Philadelphia. He says, you guys are doing amazing. And you're, you're, you're standing your ground. You're continuing to trust me and to live your lives in a way that actually honor me and honor the truth about me and well done. And, and you're, you're going to face more trials in the future, but I'm with you. I'm for you. Persevere. And these types of things. At the end of each letter, he says something to each one of them, the same thing to each one of these churches. He says this, to the one who conquers, I will And then he makes a promise to each church. To the one who conquers, I will. And to Ephesus he writes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To Smyrna he says, to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum he says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. To Thyatira he says, to the one who conquers, I will give authority over the nations. To Sardis, he says, to the one who conquers, they will be clothed in white garments. To Philadelphia, he says, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. And to his church in Laodicea, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him or her to sit with me on my throne. To the one who conquers, he calls each church to conquer Whatever it is they're facing, whatever it is Jesus is saying, I need you to deal with this. I need you to, to endure this. I'm calling you to overcome. I'm calling you to conquer. And I'm promising you to those who conquer, I will. And, and all of these things that he's promised, it's like he's saying, I am in the process of recreating creation. One could say that he's restoring Eden and then some. I don't think it's quite right to say Jesus is simply trying to get his people back to the garden. The story of God is always moving forward. Fundamentally, it's a story of hope. Jesus is saying, I'm doing a new thing, but I am recreating the world. And to those who conquer, I have a promise for you. I want you to be a part. Which all begs the big question of this whole book, 
Revelation. How does the church conquer? This, this introduces us to the big question of this book, Revelation. Jesus says, conquer. You're facing trials. You're, you're, you're enduring persecution, uh, temptation. I'm asking you to stand for truth and for justice, uh, to resist darkness. Just as I have overcome, Jesus says, just as I have overcome sin and death, just as I have conquered Satan and demons, just as I have overcome the world, I have rescued you, I've delivered you from darkness so that you might overcome like me, walk in the wake of my victory, my people. Awesome, sign me up. How do we do it? Because life in this world seems overwhelmingly difficult at times. I mean, the darkness gets really dark sometimes. How? How does the church conquer? And what does that even mean? I'll, I'll tell you right up front, Jesus is not talking about military conquest. Okay, now you might be thinking, oh, wait a second, I've read the book. We'll get there, all right? Let's not, let's not get into that now. How do God's people conquer? Each letter includes something else as well. There's actually two things that every letter includes. One is a call to conquer, linked with a promise. The second is this, a reminder to listen. Jesus says, quote, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each letter includes those things, a call to conquer with a promise and a reminder to listen. To he or she who has an ear, let him listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to the churches? Jesus is saying, I'm not just calling you to conquer and then leaving you to figure it out for yourselves. I'm telling you, listen to me carefully now. In fact, for the next, for the remainder of the book, I'm gonna answer the question, so listen carefully. The call to listen, in fact, the call to both look and listen is an ongoing refrain throughout the entire book of Revelation. Actually, that principle of looking and listening, it's a meta-theme throughout all of Scripture. For example, Jesus himself if we back up to the Gospels, he would regularly say things like, blessed are those who have an ear to hear and eyes to see. Or he would say, I only say what I hear my father saying and I only do what I see my father doing. The apostle Paul famously said to the church in Corinth, for we walk by faith and not by sight. This theme of looking and listening, perceiving what God is saying by his spirit. This, this is something fundamental to what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus and experience his life. But it didn't just begin in the New Testament. This is actually language that comes straight from the world of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even Proverbs, Deuteronomy. This is something that the seers would constantly talk about seeing things from God's perspective and declaring what God sees and says to his people. I love um, 
some of you might be familiar with the, the famous Jewish psychiatrist, he's, he's no longer alive, Viktor Frankl. He was a, a Jewish Holocaust survivor in World, World War II. It's a beautiful story that he tells of how when he was uh, imprisoned in the, the Auschwitz death camp, uh, he had one thing on him. He had a, a manuscript. It was Apparently, it was his life work, handwritten in his coat pocket. It was the only thing that he, he had been able to hold on to. And when the prison guards were checking him in to the prison camp there in Auschwitz, of course, they stripped him down. They took his clothes. They gave him uh, the, the uniform, the prison uniform of another person who had literally just been executed. He was wearing the clothes of a dead man. And in the pocket of that prison uniform was a single little piece of paper, a scrap piece of paper. And on that paper was written the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6. For hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your soul. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God's people have always been reminded, listen, look, the Spirit wants you to see something from heaven's perspective. Here. The invitation to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, to perceive or discern what the Holy Spirit is saying or desiring to show God's children is a fundamental theme in the story of God and a key to answering our question, how do God's people conquer while living in the empire of, quote-unquote, Babylon or Rome, if you're in the first century? The anti-Christ empire. Listen. The Spirit of God whispers to our hearts saying, look, listen, remember, in the midst of every trial, temptation, and demonic scheme, the kingdom of darkness tries to throw at you, behold, a throne in heaven. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of demonic attack, some of you know what I'm talking about, some of you get freaked out by that. In the midst of everything that hell has to throw at you, the Holy Spirit whispers to God's people, look, listen, behold, your king enthroned in heaven. And we enter the throne room of God. This is the transition between Revelation 1, 2, and 3 and chapter 4. How does the church overcome? Behold, there is a throne in heaven. And your sovereign king, the one who conquered sin and death, still remains enthroned upon it. When you're surrounded by darkness and the spirit of God begins to whisper to your heart, rise, take your stand in Christ, conquer 
stand and live in the wake of your king's victory, what do you see? What do you hear? The enemy wants you to fixate on everything that he's doing. The enemy wants to keep your head wrapped around all that's gone wrong, all that sin has done, all the ways it would seem that death is winning, all of the brokenness, all of the past. He wants you to think that somehow Jesus has like fallen asleep on the throne. He wants to reduce your vision of God or at the very least sort of equalize it, normalize it, level it out and put it on level ground with what he's doing and get us to think that somehow God only knows how it's all going to end. And I don't know, I have not seen the throne in a long time. And perhaps there is no hope. Perhaps Perhaps the demons are going to win this one. Perhaps our city's lost. Perhaps there truly isn't a king reigning in heaven, sovereign over the cosmos. Or perhaps the devil's wrong. And perhaps the spirit wants us to see. And perhaps the spirit of God wants us to listen. And behold, there is a throne room in heaven. And the king of the universe is still firmly established upon it. And that's where we start. We step through that open door in heaven as John described it and we behold and we stand in awe of the majesty of our sovereign king and God and we're reminded that he has won and that death has been defeated and all that we might even die in this life as many of the churches had and would. King Jesus The mighty one, the one who is mightier than I has gone before me and he sits on his throne. What do you see? What do you see? The world would have us gazing endlessly into our navel hoping to discover some inner hidden treasure that just needs some unlocking inside. You know what I'm talking about? This idea that my life is hard and everything is unpleasant and, and I, perhaps if I just discover something inside, if I just unlock the hidden gem that's within, then, then that will be the answer. And I'll, I'll finally learn to love myself. And I'll finally unlock all of my wonderful potential and begin to live my best life now. And I, I get it. And I understand that there's some truth to discovering yourself and learning to love yourself and All that, and I'm sorry to get so worked up. But the Spirit is saying, look, 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 look. The answer's not in here. Look up. Behold, your king, the greater one. He may be living inside you. You want to get all theologically technical or whatever. but you are not the answer to your problems, nor am I. There's a king in heaven. There's a greater one who wants to live on the inside. The spirit of the king who conquered sin and death would say, look up. 
The freedom you're looking for isn't found in discovering yourself. It's in gazing upon the glory of the greater one, the one who actually has the power, the wisdom, the unparalleled love to fight for you, even die for you, and deliver you from the kingdom of darkness that you might experience a new kind of life. You know, when I was at our new building on Friday, it was my fifth or sixth time actually going inside the building. I was there with our insurance agent, super cool Christian guy, um, Sean Slater. Some of you might know him. He gets around. Uh, just to, if you've never bought in a church building before that has a bit of uh, deferred maintenance, when the first time you meet your insurance agent at the church building, brace yourself because they're conditioned to point out like the worst things about the building. You follow me? This is what insurance companies do. They're like, this, this, is, this could go wrong and this could go wrong and this could go wrong. So I was like preparing myself. And, uh, and of course it was, it was that and then some. And I'm walking around this little building and of course you know, I'm like, oh gosh, like I didn't notice that crack before and Gosh, was the bell tower like that bad the, a month ago? And, and I'm looking at all this stuff and I'm just telling myself, breathe, breathe, breathe. Like this is. And then, as I'm walking around this beautiful, historic building that needs a bit of love, it was as if I heard the Spirit of God whispering to my heart Look up. I need you to see what I'm seeing. I need you to perceive with the eyes of your heart my vision for this building, for my people, for the city, this neighborhood, for the world. I need you to dream with me. I need you to expand your vision because I've got incredible ideas, plans, resources, a mission that involves this building for you and I need you to open your eyes. I need you to begin to dream with me. And as it, was, it was as if the spirit of the Lord is saying, yeah, you could easily look at all of the challenges. You could easily wonder yourself, what went wrong anyways? Why is this building the way it is? Who sinned? Who messed up? Where did it all go sideways? Or you could dream with me. You could open your eyes and remind yourself that I am still the head of my church. I am still seated on the throne and I am the master of redemption. I am the God of resurrection. Whether it's a life, a family, a marriage, a building, a city, or the world, I am in the business of recreating my creation. Can you see it? Can you hear it? You want in? You want to participate? And I was like, yes, Jesus. And then I avoided the insurance agent for a minute because I'm like, you're killing my vibe. I'm in the spirit. And I am saying this in part just because this is, I just want to share my heart with you. But I also want to encourage us as a church. We're about to go on an adventure together. And I promise you, if you come to pray with us on Saturday, you're going to start looking around like, ooh, we got some work to do. Uh-huh, uh-huh. God, help us. Give us your vision, not just for a building, but for the people, the souls, the lives that God is passionate about rescuing, lost sons and daughters coming home. That's how God dreams. 
this is what God has been doing for a long time. I love um, just a couple of examples. Stephen, the first recorded martyr in the New Testament. He was uh, in Jerusalem confronting uh, leaders, fellow Jews in the city, and he was telling them that you are in sin. Uh, You will stand before your God. He will judge you, and the only way you will escape hell is if you surrender your lives to Jesus. And I'm, I'm summarizing Stephen. He's much more poetic about it. But this is essentially what he's saying. He's not mincing his words. That you will all stand and be judged by the creator of heaven and earth. And you will realize in a moment that we are so not qualified to rescue or qualify ourselves to stand before a holy and righteous God which is why he sent Jesus to rescue us. So he's saying all of this, right? How do you feel when you hear a preacher talking about you're a sinner and God will judge you and your only hope of deliverance is Jesus? It's always slightly um, offensive. I mean, this is the nature of the gospel. It's, it's this, this wonderful tension of like, it just bludgeons your ego and at the same time offers you hope and love. This is, this is like the, the heart of our God. He's like, you're hopelessly lost. You're damned. You're a sinner. But I love you, which is why I came to rescue you. But you have to trust me. This is what Stephen is saying. And they get really, really angry. And they're like, we're going to kill you. We are going to murder you. And so they all pick up rocks. They take him outside of the city. And they're about to murder him. But Stephen, this is Acts 7, but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. He peers into the throne room of heaven and you know what he starts to do? Just before he breathes his last, he starts to pray for his persecutors. He begins to pray for his murderers like Jesus. The kingdom of God touches down. When the Syrian army, Old Testament, when the Syrian army had surrounded the entire city where Elisha and his servant were residing, this is 2 Kings chapter 6, it said Elisha's servant was scared for his life. But Elisha turned to his servant and said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them, the people trying to kill them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, his servant, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's like one of the coolest things in the whole Bible. Open your eyes. I get it. At times I'm like, God, this, this city just feels forsaken. I love Portland. I moved from the other side of the world because I fell in love with this city a few years ago. But some days, I'm like, I don't know if it's the rain or what it is, but it just, just feels like just dark. It feels dark. And then I begin to wonder, like, what, what demons are just, like, getting in my head? And then occasionally... I hear the spirit of God whispering to me, open your eyes. (laughs) I am the greater one. Greater is my army than 
this other army of darkness. Army of darkness. You guys remember that one? Okay. Good, good one. As you find yourself facing the challenges of your life this upcoming year, maybe right now, what do you see? What do you see? 2020. You got dreams. Probably got some good stuff going on. We're all alive. We're breathing. You look great. You appear healthy. But we've got challenges for sure. We could probably go up and down every one of these aisles and we could talk about, you know, my wife's dad is, is in chemo right now, praying for that. That's, that's heavy. That's hard. That's dark. Some of you, I'm sure, similar things, health, finances, crippling financial situations, depression that just simply doesn't go away because you're like, Lord Jesus, open my eyes. It's like, nope, it's still there. It's still real. And I'm still on meds. So I'm, I'm in the fight, right? What do you see when you look out over that, the, the landscape, the horizon of 2020, you think about the darkness. What is the Spirit saying? Where is Jesus in your scenario? When John, who was dumped off and left to die on Patmos, looked through that open door in heaven, he saw Jesus seated on the throne. He saw a king seated on a throne surrounded by a rainbow. Did you guys get that part? There was a rainbow. It said it was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. I have no idea what that looks like. But if you were a first century Jew reading these words that Jesus spoke to John and you saw a rainbow, you'd immediately think, what is it, Genesis 9. This is this is the sign of the Noadic covenant, the covenant of hope. When God looked at the world and he saw that it's just, it's just rife with wickedness. It's like, it's just evil through and through. This is terrible. I, I can't even stand by and, 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 and see another child brought into this utterly corrupt evil world. So he wiped it out. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's unreal. And it says it, it grieved him to the heart. It's just unreal. But he wasn't done. Gosh, God's never done. So he saved one family, Noah and his family. And he said, build an ark. You guys have probably heard the story. And he brought them through the waters and it was this picture of God's grace. He saved them, he rescued them. And he gave them the sign of this covenant, which was a rainbow in the clouds. The covenant of hope. It's one of the first things that John notices in this vision of the heavenly throne room, that the throne is surrounded by a rainbow. And it's a reminder that our sovereign king isn't done yet. I don't, I do care. I don't care, but I do care how difficult your life is or how, that you know that sin that you hate, but you love, and every time you think you're done with it because you deleted the app and you put it back on and you're just like, you just can't seem to stop doing what you don't want to do, and you do what you don't, and you don't want to talk. Have you ever been like in bondage to some sort of besetting sin, and you hate it, and you want to be set free from it? And maybe you did it last night, 
and you're coming in this place and you're talking to me about sin and judgment and, and all of this stuff, but there's hope. As we look upon the throne room of God, I want you to note that it's surrounded by the covenant of hope. There is always hope. If there's nothing else, there's hope. Faith, hope, and love. What else does he see? He sees a king who emits thunder and lightning. This is Exodus 19. This is the almighty king of power, the same one who vanquished Pharaoh. Egypt had held God's people in slavery for 400 years, and God was calling them out. He was on another rescue mission yet again. And yet Pharaoh, the empire of Egypt, refused to let them go, and so he had to judge them. It was God Almighty in power. And when they arrived to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, it says that the earth shaked and the, the sky clattered, and it was God Almighty in power coming down, and the people were terrified. This is the fear of the Lord. It's a good thing to be reminded how terrifyingly awesome and powerful our king is. It makes one even that much more grateful for his mercy. It sets us free to not fear the opinion of others. You guys ever heard that expression, the fear of man? I'm, you know, being so caught up in what others think and what your boss thinks or this person thinks, and it's like it just rules you. And it, and it ends in nothing but anxiety and insecurity. But the scripture says, don't fear man. Don't fear the guy who can only kill your body. Okay. I'm kind of scared to be killed by someone, but don't worry about it. Only fear the one who can kill your body and soul in hell. The fear of God sets us free to be the most secure people in the world. John sees a king of whom creation itself never ceases to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the holy one. You know, the creatures, the four creatures, the ox and the, the lion and the, 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 the eagle and the man. You could, I mean, they're commentary upon commentary upon commentary about all that. But from what I can tell, this is just this uh, a kind of angelic vision of all creation surrounding the throne of God, worshiping without cease, holy, holy, holy. This king is holy. I love what um, Jonathan Edwards, that classic American uh, theologian and revivalist said. This is beautiful. Holiness is a most beautiful, lovely thing. Men are apt to drink in strange notions of holiness from their childhood as if it were a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing. But there's nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely, tis the highest beauty and amiableness, amiableness, vastly above all other beauties, tis a divine beauty. 
Aren't we all looking for beauty? Isn't that what compels us to worship? Beauty. We're hardwired for it. We're not really alive without it. God wants to captivate us by his beauty. It's a good thing when we come together occasionally to simply stand in awe of the Holy One. It sets the world back into right perspective. When it feels like everything is just ugly around me, when I look in the mirror and I'm reminded of my present reality, it is a good thing to open my eyes and be reminded there is one who is worthy to be called holy. There is my God is the beautiful one. John sees a king who shares his throne room with his people. And he sees a king before whom we might gladly cast our crowns. Isn't it astounding? And this will be the last thing. Isn't it astounding that in the throne room of heaven, this great king shares his throne room with 24 elders? This is, this is something else. This is something else. Given all of the holiness and the grandeur and the awe and the hope and the, just the overwhelming picture that we're presented as we glimpse into the throne room of God, you would think you would just see like, I mean, if there was a human being in the room, they would just be like writhing on the ground like some unworthy worm. And yet there's something about our God. He calls himself Father and he says, come before me. And it would be the most natural thing to want to like bow down and tremble. And yet consistently he says, arise, stand. When I look at you, I see you in my son Christ. You are righteous in my eyes. Stand up. I've prepared a throne for you, even a crown in my presence. I've called you to co-rule with me. And some of you are like, whoa, that's, what are the implications? What are the when God created the man and the woman, he put them in the Garden of Eden. He said, now I want you to take dominion. I want you to create with me, not from nothing, but be creative and cultivate and organize and bring peace where there was once chaos and make beauty out of what was once nothing and, and, and work with me and participate in, in, in the work that I've begun. And even in heaven, gives us a throne. Who are the 24 elders? Again, you can read a few commentaries or 20. It could be the, uh, it said that in, 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 in the temple, the priests were broken into 24 divisions and they would serve in the temple around the clock. The worship, the musicians, those responsible for leading God's people in music were broken into 24 divisions that they served around the clock in the temple. Of course, you had the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Christ and on and on and on. The, the, the symbolism's rich, but I think however you look at it, it's, we are those elders. It's the church, it's God's people. It's those of us who have been exalted 
in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places. Our God is the God who dignifies. He welcomes us to sit with him as sons and daughters, family members of the royal family, and he gives us crowns. Oh my goodness, we could, I, could, I could preach for hours on that. I mean, just think about it. I don't care what you've, I, I care, but I don't care what you've been told. Who said you were stupid or ugly or dirty or worthless. I don't care what you've told yourself. In Jesus Christ, you are royal blood. In Jesus Christ, you are given a crown and seated on a throne in heavenly places with our king. You have dignity. You were created in the image of God. And if anyone thinks differently, they're wrong, 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 wrong. And then what do they do? They take off their crowns and they throw them before the king. God dignifies us, but always when we look up, we realize, what am I doing with this thing on? I don't want to be king anyways. Have you ever tried to be God of your own life? I dare you to try it the worst thing you could ever, ever do with your life. If you're anything like me, you're a tyrant. No mercy. (laughs) And so we're dignified. But we throw our crowns before the greater one. And we say, "You're, you're a good king. You're faithful. You're strong. You're wise. Your grace never seems to run out. Not in Jesus. Not in Jesus. As you look out across the landscape of 2020, what do you see? Who does your heart behold? Who is your king? How big is your God? Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.